Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Dr. Mark Bubs, and welcome to the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, evidence-informed, practical-based. This is season two, episode number 30, and today we're dovetailing on last week's topic of microbiota, gut-brain axis, and talking a little more digestion. This time, IBS, commonly known as irritable bowel syndrome, but in this episode, my guest, naturopath Ben Brown, is going to pose a very compelling question, one gaining a lot of momentum in the evidence-based literature at the moment. Does IBS exist? Is it fact or fiction? Well, in this episode, Ben will lay out the classic definition of irritable bowel syndrome. He'll then discuss why irritable bowel-like symptoms is perhaps a more appropriate term. From there, he'll dive into the underlying causes or potential causes of irritable bowel-like symptoms, grouping them in three categories, functional imbalances, lifestyle environment, and nutritional factors. Amongst these, you'll hear Ben talk about the connections between things like low-grade inflammation, constipation, dysbiosis, SIBO, leaky gut, and IBS. He'll also discuss nutritional factors that can contribute, like carb intolerance, food hypersensitivities, and vitamin D deficiency. Finally, lifestyle factors like stress, physical activity, and circadian rhythms are also playing a role. And of course, Ben will talk lab testing, what's appropriate, what is perhaps not, and solutions for clients and practitioners. Lots of great stuff here from Ben, fantastic insights um, on a very, very complex issue. So if you'd like to link to the research papers discussed here or Ben's book, um, then check out drbubs.com forward slash podcast, as well as my layups, these simple actionable tips. Terrific. Well, if you're interested in more on this topic of digestion, then definitely don't miss last week's episode with Miguel Mateas on this microbiota gut-brain connection. And of course, if you're new to the show, welcome aboard. If you want to get caught up season two, then please check out our Rewind Highlights episode number 18 from this year. For our regular listeners tuning back in, great to have you back on board. Uh, And if you have a minute, we're looking to actually ask a small favor. We're looking to boost our subscribers on YouTube. So if you'd like to listen to your podcast via YouTube or just want to support the show, then please head over to YouTube, search Dr. Bub's performance podcast and subscribe over there. It's a really, really big help for the show. Terrific. Before we get started, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest deep ocean mineral water. Collected from natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sports drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. The research on deep ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink, tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. Check out totemsport.co.uk and defy the norm. All right, on to the show, Season 2, Episode 30. Enjoy. My guest today is Ben Brown a naturopath, nutritionist, science writer, and speaker. He is the author of The Digestion Health Solution and editor of the Journal of Orthomolecular Medicine. 
Contributing Editor of Integrated Healthcare and Applied Nutrition, and the Director of Clinical Education for Pure Encapsulations. He's also on the advisory board of the BCNH College of Nutrition and Health, where he's also a lecturer. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Terrific. Well, we're going to talk all things digestion here today, specifically around uh, IBS, Irritable Bowel Syndrome, or in your recent talk, which I had the pleasure of attending at the International Congress of Naturopathic Medicine uh, in London a few weeks back, you sort of redefined it as irritable bowel symptoms, not syndrome. So before we maybe dive into that, perhaps you can kick things off here with giving listeners just a traditional definition of IBS and, and perhaps a little overview of you know, how many people this might affect. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the traditional definition is um, really defined by a, a set sort of symptom criteria. So you have IBS, basically, if you regularly have uh, cramping, pain, bloating, alterations in bowel habits, and, um, and symptoms of that nature, really. And, you know, without getting too technical, that's about the sum of it. And if you have those chronically and uh, pretty regularly, you fall into that sort of loose definition. Within that definition, the severity of symptoms can vary quite a lot. So for some people, the symptoms could be quite mild, whereas other people, they can be really debilitating, impacting ability to work and hold down, you know, um, day-to-day, you know, function really. It can be quite significant. Um, In terms of incidence, um, you know, given the you know, very generalized ability of those symptoms and and um, the varying severity of them. Very broadly, it's estimated that around one in four people um, suffer from IBS. So the, the prevalence is extremely high, and this makes it the most common gastro and, uh, gastrointestinal disorder out there, basically. Um, so it's uh, incredibly common. Absolutely. It's definitely something that I see often in clinical practice, whether it's a general population, athletes as well. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, if we jump right in here, you know, does IBS exist? Should we be reclassifying this as irritable bowel symptoms? Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah. So that's sort of my perspective. I've been working uh, on this topic and in this area for some time, written a book on it and, you know, publishing some research around it. And, and basically, um, I think, you know, a lot of the conundrums we have with IBS, you know, problems with diagnosis and treatment can be solved by adopting the view that, well, actually, it doesn't exist. And I mean, it sounds a bit crazy and and a bit of a an alternative view. But what I mean by that, and it makes a lot of sense, it's quite logical. And that is that actually IBS has multiple underlying causes and the condition IBS itself is not the the end goal in terms of um, diagnosis and treatment. So there's most likely something else underlying the development of those symptoms that we can identify and and help people manage. and And that's what I mean by you know it it doesn't exist. It's um, you know there's we need to be digging a bit deeper and moving away from the sort of diagnosis of IBS per se because it doesn't really help anyone much. No, I mean, it's often the case where, yeah, clients come in or an athlete comes in and come, tells you their symptoms of what they have. And of course, the, the doctor or practitioner will say, well, you have IBS. And it's almost like it's exactly what the patient told the practitioner in coming in. So we haven't really <laughs> solved much of anything, have we? So, you know, in your, in your talk, you list some underlying causes of IBS and of course, grouping them in 
under three categories. So you know, functional imbalances, I believe you had, lifestyle environment, and nutritional factors. So maybe we can start with the functional imbalances and perhaps you can walk listeners through a few of those uh, root causes. Yeah, absolutely. So um, so really, the what we're talking about with sort of functional imbalances are things that are going on within the physiology of a person. It'll vary from person to person. And often there's not just one thing, there can be multiple things interacting. But they're things that we know are features of some people with IBS symptoms. And we also know uh, that addressing these, so actually you know, using interventions that help improve these imbalances, so to speak, can bring about good symptomatic uh, improvements. So that's sort of what we're talking about to set the scene. And within that uh, area, there's there's quite a few things that fit, fall loosely into that sort of category or uh, of factors that could be antagonizing or or giving rise to the symptoms of IBS. And you know, we can pick away at a few of them. I think I um, listed about seven or eight, but you know, one of the core ones that I think is particularly interesting that's emerging in the literature recently is this concept of low-grade inflammation in the gut mucosa. And you know, the the interesting thing about this idea is that traditionally inflammation was thought to be quite distinct from from IBS you know if you have IBS it's not an inflammatory disease but what we're beginning to understand is that actually it it is a mild type of inflammatory disease for some people at least and you can detect this and it appears that using uh, anti-inflammatory type interventions you could um, improve symptoms as well um in fact, some researchers are tending to, to suggest now that IBS sits on a continuum um, as a predisposing factor to inflammatory bowel disease in some cases, which is remarkable and something we weren't talking about or thinking about previously. So that appears to be a big one. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing how obviously today with over two thirds of the population being overweight, um, you know, pre-diabetes, diabetes on the rise, this idea of you know, chronic persistent low-grade inflammation is so uh, pervasive in the mm-hmm. in the community that it's um, no wonder that we have so many people potentially experiencing a lot of the symptoms of, of IBS. Um, can you walk us through a few more uh, in terms of things like you know constipation, dysbiosis? Those are often common ones that are brought up. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean they're two great ones. I mean constipation also has not traditionally been thought to be a cause of IBS. You know they're you know, as far as the textbook goes and, and clinical symptoms, generally what happens is people differentiate co- chronic constipation as being just quite distinct from, from irritable bowel syndrome. But there's a group here in the in the UK where I'm based to, that have been looking at this for a number of years. They're uh, based at a, a hospital sort of arm of Oxford University doing some research into gastroenterology up there. And they, they actually coined this syndrome um, – that gives rise to IBS, they call uh, overload overflow syndrome. And what they were able to identify is that a subset of people, their estimates are quite high, about one third of people who present with IBS symptoms have essentially chronic constipation masquerading as IBS. And when I say masquerading, it, um, what's happening is, is there's a, a chronic sort of buildup and 
you know, slow uh, gastric transit, which is very characteristic of constipation. But what's happening is, is on top of that, if there's any stress or, you know, it could be emotional or it could be eating some problem foods, what can happen is it'll sort of cause that buildup to overflow and cause diarrhea and pain and discomfort, which looks, um, you know, like this classical definition of IBS, which isn't traditionally considered to be constipation. So what um, them and, and a few other groups independent of them have, have um, demonstrated quite clearly is that when you identify this subset who actually just have chronic functional constipation and then treat the constipation, the IBS goes. Uh, you know, So that's a really interesting thing to consider and often overlooked uh, in patients who present with IBS. Definitely. I mean, I think some of those ones that we see as well in, in clinical practice around constipation, things like, you know, dehydration, things like um, lack of fiber in the diet, things like dysbiosis, which, you know, maybe you can dovetail into here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so dysbiosis is probably the big one. Because um, what we're really talking about here is one of the sort of fundamental mechanisms for which gastrointestinal symptoms develop. It's really, you know, to um, define dysbiosis very simplistically. What it is is an overgrowth of bad bacteria and a you know a poor representation of good bacteria. I'm not sure if there's such a thing, but you know that's broadly you know what we're talking about here is, is yep. some sort of problem in the gut ecosystem. And um, yeah, and it's this is one of the sort of most replicable findings in people with symptoms uh, of IBS is is this alterations in bowel flora and uh, there are two sort of mechanisms by which we think this is contributing to symptoms the first is that um, they're over fermenting food um, so particular bacteria are particularly good at fermenting carbohydrates in particular that cause a lot of gas and distension and discomfort that interacts with muscles and nerves and gives rise to all the other symptoms like pain and cramping and alterations in bowel habits and things. The second thing that's going on is, is that the bacteria themselves beyond the gas are, are producing, let's say, toxic metabolites to overgeneralize it. And those toxic metabolites interact with the gut itself and then even the systemic uh, immune system and nervous system and can give rise to symptoms of IBS as well. So this is really a big area of, of interest both for clinicians and researchers and part of the reason the interest is there is because we can do something about it you know there's a lot of um, known uh, interventions that we can use to improve this issue of dysbiosis and a number of them have been shown to bring about really good improvements in clinical symptoms I'm talking about things like probiotics prebiotics and dietary interventions that are designed to you know, change the gut flora or microflora. Yeah, it's incredible how, um, again, processed food intake, fast food intake can really just uh, totally deplete um, that, that ecosystem, um, leading mm -hmm. to, you know, just a dysbiotic bacteria and just, just plummeting the diversity of the gut. And of course, all those acellular carbs, as you mentioned, then you, all of a sudden you've got the bacteria feeding off of this and creating this environment that's so perfect for, for discomfort and, and adverse symptoms. Um, Another condition that's become obviously quite popular, so to speak, in the last few years is SIBO. I have more and more patients coming in saying, hey, I think I've got the SIBO. Um, can you talk about the connection there with SIBO and IBS and if, how that fits into the picture? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that, 
the way you've painted it just there is beautiful. I mean, the, the way more and more I'm thinking about the gut is and, and the gut microflora is it's just an ecosystem like any other ecosystem on the planet. And, you know, what's happening is it is um, because of modern processed diets, we're just we're not feeding the forest very well, basically. Clear cutting is probably a better. Uh, <laughs> yeah, clear, clear cutting is true, and yeah. and we even think that there's species extinction now as well, which is a real problem. So, but you know, getting back to SIBO, essentially, what's happening there is a unique type of uh, dysbiosis where you have an overgrowth of um, colonic bacteria. So, so normally in the gut, most of the bacteria sit in the colon. As you know, and and um, there's a lower preponderance of them in the small intestine, which sits, you know, above it. You know, if it was a sort of a logical progression there. And and what's happened is, is in SIBO, you've got this overgrowth of the colonic bacteria up into the lower section of the small intestine, and essentially, there, right there, is a scenario where you've got good bacteria where they shouldn't really be and they're fermenting food uh, sooner than they should be and that sort of um, interacts with the local environment, the small intestine in a way that, again, gives rise to symptoms through gas and toxins and bloating and pain and changes in muscle, muscle and immune function. So that's sort of the background of what SIBO is and a tremendous amount of interest in this area as well because, again, we know by identifying SIBO and then uh, treating it, essentially the the best documented method is is um, certain antibiotics. It can bring about symptom improvement, but there are problems with this sort of view of um, treatment of SIBO is that it often reoccurs. Often the treatments are not particularly effective. So I think my you know where I'm going and a lot of other clinicians are going and researchers even with SIBO is that well rather than just looking at it like we've got bugs in the wrong spot, let's kill off the bad bugs. It's like, well, why are they there in the first place? And I think that's a more important question. And it seems that there are a number of different factors that predispose people to SIBO that perhaps we should be addressing rather than just looking at it like let's kill the bad guys and, uh, and hope that that eradicates the problem because it often doesn't and it'll come back. Yeah, very well said. It's definitely something that I see, that sort of cyclical nature of, you know, you identify it in a test, you provide a protocol, you, you do some eradication, the client feels better, but, you know, lo and behold, a few months down the road or, or, or longer, then all of a sudden these symptoms start coming back because, you know, whether it's the diet, the environment, you know, we'll talk about stressors in a minute here, but all those things tend to be playing this role into recreating this environment. And, um if yeah. we stay on this subject here and just maybe finish off with another one that's obviously very popular, this idea of leaky gut intestinal permeability, definitely one that with athletes, especially endurance athletes, is something that is uh, highly prevalent, um, especially mm -hmm. the longer duration ultra marathoners, etc. So, you know, what's the connection there between the the leaky gut and potentially this IBS? Yeah, I mean that. I mean it is a big one, and and essentially what's like as you, I'm sure you well know with your work in athletes, is that it, you know, with intestinal permeability essentially what you've got is a stressed gut you know for for different reasons um and there are many but the the gut is uh physiologically stressed the um the cellular um permeability is increased as a result of that stress basically and you get increased um translocation of what we call endotoxin or lipopolysaccharide from the gastrointestinal tract through into the gut mucosa um, even into systemic circulation. The problem is, is you know, a little bit of 
intestinal permeability is is physiological. It's quite normal. You know, the gut needs to be permeable, and a bit of toxin comes through. That's that's perfectly fine. But when you've got this increased stress and a higher level of um, this uh, passage of, of toxins from the gut into the mucosa and circulation, you can then start to activate um, mostly the, the immune system, which then uh, can interact with nerves and muscles and give rise to the symptoms of IBS. So it's been known for a number of years that intestinal permeability is present in a subset of people with irritable bowel-like symptoms. And um, more recently, there's been some work looking at potential interventions for that. Most notably, there was a fabulous, and you know, it's pretty preliminary stuff, but there was a really fabulous uh, series of investigations done recently where a group were looking um, firstly um, in more diarrhea-predominant IBS, which is more strongly associated with intestinal permeability, what they were able to identify is that there's a defect in the synthesis of an amino acid called glutamine in the gut mucosa, which is responsible for keeping the gut less permeable. They then went, well, if that's the case, let's try glutamine in a bunch of patients. They then conducted a clinical trial and found that it was quite effective for reducing symptoms, reducing markers of permeability, and um, it appeared to be quite a good intervention. It's just one study. It's the first that I'm aware of in patients with, you know, defined IBS, but it's pretty exciting to see that sort of a work being done now, in the at least in the scientific literature. Yeah, it's, in, it's impressive how, um, you know, glutamine supplementation really can impact the gut, um, particularly. I mean, I know there's a lot of Oftentimes, we see studies around immunity, and of course, you know, in people who are really immunocompromised, it can be beneficial. But definitely for folks with with gut issues, um, and particularly intestinal permeability, we see a lot of of benefits. So it's exciting to see some of that research coming out. Um, and as you said, it's it's normal for you know all of us have a little bit of permeability going on. There's this general noise that's happening, um, which is which is fine. The immune system allows, but then when that noise or signal gets too loud, then all of a sudden we get this this heightened response, and that's when the problem starts. So, um, mm-hmm. great uh, run through there of some of the functional imbalances that can come in, and we can obviously see there's a lot of underlying causes here. But if we shift gears over to the nutritional factors, you know, what could lead to IBS on the nutrition specific side of things? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and there's a there's a few things that are really emerging to be particularly important. Um, let's start with one of them that's that's a big topic, and that's uh, intolerance to to sugars and carbohydrates and it's a big topic because there's been quite a lot of investigation in this area just in the last, well, five to ten years in particular. And although it's been known about for close to 100 from what I can gather in the scientific literature, so different groups have looked at it over many years. And the basic premise has remained the same over that time, and that is that carbohydrates can be fermented into gas <laughs> and um yeah. and they can also sometimes very well <laughs> yeah exactly by some people really well yeah. and um and they can also have an osmotic effect and some carbohydrates are not absorbed very quickly so they sit in the gut like fructose and uh because of that it by osmotic i mean it it, it sort of attracts water so if you've got a sugar sitting in the in the gut and it's pulling water into the gut you know what's going to happen it'll start to cause discomfort and alterations in bowel movements and diarrhea in particular. So these sort of intolerances to different sugars has emerged as particularly important. And I mean, the one of the diets that's 
come to the forefront in this area is, is the so-called FODMAP diet, which is uh, designed to essentially identify the carbohydrates that people are not tolerating and then remove them. So you sort of systematically go through, is it lactose? Is it fructose? You know, is it certain fibers? And uh, and remove those from the from the patient's diet. So that's a big one. But I think, you know, beyond that sort of... Um, sort of specificity of particular sugars, I think there's a bigger issue, and that is that people are just eating too much carbs, especially refined carbs and too many processed sugars. And, I mean, that's a good place to start if you've got digestive problems. 100%, yeah. I mean, sometimes these simple heuristics, like even a low-carb strategy or whatnot, what you end up finding is, yeah, people then eat far fewer processed foods and sugars, and, of course, we see an improvement uh, and mm. gut function. And of course, they could achieve that using different nutritional strategies. But it just so happens that some of the ones that definitely limit uh, a lot of the processed foods, we're going to see some some definite improvements. And, you know, how about yeah. food sensitivities? Is this part of the picture as well? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, it, it remains, unfortunately, a little bit controversial. But the idea that certain foods could be aggravating IBS, I think, has certainly um, got weight to, you know, take notice of and there are several investigations that have been done in this area and we know for sure that you know if you can identify um what we call sort of more delayed reaction sensitivity so not like an allergy but a, a more subtle type of food sensitivity through things like immunoglobulin testing um or igg testing and then you know construct a personalized elimination diet based on that people get better you know, so, you know, the controversy exists more around the, the, um, uh, I guess you could say the mechanisms of by which this is all occurring, but the proofs in the For pudding sure. and, and clinically people just get better, you know, so, um, you can't really debate that. And, and, um, the, the tricky thing is though, is that it varies, you know, widely from person to person. So it is highly personalized, but there are some common offenders, you know, it's wheat, dairy proteins like casein um and uh, and nuts and soy and things which are common allergens as well by chance so um there are some key things to look out for there for sure and you mentioned obviously the fodmaps previously and of course you know things like bread obviously gluten was one of the ones where mm -hmm. we used to eat, flag that as a potential offender and of course now folks even in the conventional uh, areas are, are highlighting the fact that it could be more of the FODMAPs and the bread. But as you mentioned, regardless, most of our clients and patients are just looking for relief. So removing some of these foods, uh, sometimes even just for the short term or moderate term, can definitely provide a lot of relief. Um, and if we round out some of these nutritional factors, vitamin D deficiency, how does that play a role? Yeah, I mean, that has really, um, you know, been shown to be particularly important for people with IBS-like symptoms. And you know, vitamin D deficiency is incredibly common in the general population, but it's much higher in people with these kinds of symptoms, um, almost double. So the the thing there is is that vitamin D is has a number of really important roles in maintaining gastrointestinal health, including keeping that inflammation in check, keeping that permeability in check, keeping that dysbiosis in check <laughs> that we just spoke about. So it's kind of hitting lots of different areas. And if you're suboptimal and you're not getting enough, which, you know, most people aren't anyway, um, these things get a bit out of control and that could give rise to IBS-like symptoms over time. And quite clearly, I think we can see now that if you've 
got you know vitamin d deficiency and you correct that so you bring your blood levels back up um the symptoms can um, be mitigated so it's a you know it's a really important consideration for anyone who's exhibiting these kinds of symptoms yeah, definitely part of the picture. And of course, today with a bit of the sunshine lifestyle that people are fearing mm. a little bit of the, the sun. And of course, you know, for good reason in the hot parts of the day, obviously wearing, you know, being mindful and protective and using sunscreen, et cetera. But I mean, for, for a lot of the time, just not getting enough exposure to, you know, that 20 to 30 minutes a day on, on limbs is definitely really important to get those levels back up. And, and most people, unfortunately, being stuck inside at work or even athletes who, are outside in the sun, you know, Kenyan runners are even deficient in it's, you know, wearing mm. sort of the longer sleeve uh, outfits and, and being, um, you know, fearful of, of some of the, um, being out in the hot parts of the day. So definitely one to look out for. Mm -hmm. um, now we've touched on the uh, functional imbalances and nutritional factors. What about areas like stress, uh, circadian rhythms, physical activity? How do these things fit into IBS? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're a really important part of the picture, and I think it's, um, um, you know, often overlooked that these simple lifestyle changes can have big effects on our health, and this is particularly true for digestive health. I mean, really, you know, at the top of this list is, is stress and circadian disruption. We can touch on physical inactivity next, but um, they're particularly important, stress in particular, because it often coexists with the disorder you know the gastrointestinal problems cause stress and the stress causes the gastrointestinal problems so whether or not it was the cause most people have a problem in this area by the time their symptoms are, are fully blown or developed and um, it's not to say that the symptoms of ibs are all in people's heads you know that's a really old outdated ridiculous idea what we're talking about here is a the coexistence of nervous system and brain dysfunction with a gastrointestinal disorder because the two are interacting and interrelated. So the way I often talk about it is, you know, when you want to get these symptoms under control, you've got a, a bottom-up approach, excuse the pun, where you're, <laughs> where you're focusing on, you know, getting the gut right, but you've also got a top-down approach, which is where you're using your brain and your nervous system to help control the nerves in the gut. Um, so things like, you know, relaxation and meditation and stress reduction techniques uh, can be really powerful for a lot of people with these kinds of symptoms because you're sort of harnessing the ability of your own nervous system to calm down the nerves in your gut. Um, so I think that's that's a that's a big one is is stress. Definitely. I think that uh, almost that type A personality as well can be on that mental emotional side is, you know, I've seen a lot of endurance athletes where digestive issues are part of the um, part of the concerns you know chronic concerns and a lot of things help to improve those when you apply whether it's you know changes in nutrition supplements etc um, but oftentimes these folks I mean, that just inherent mental emotional stresses is really driving a lot of the system and uh, last week I actually had uh, Miguel Mateus on who um, you know dug deep oh, into cool. that sort of brain, uh, guts, uh, microbiota sort of axis. So for folks who want to dig in a little bit more to that, you can definitely check out last week's episode. Right. Um, but for yourself and your clients and people that you see, uh, Ben, you know, yeah, how does stress really play a role in, 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 in a lot of this? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, like I said, it's really fundamental. So it's um, as part of 
um, management of IBS. I, I really think incorporating things like um, basic cognitive behavioral therapy, di- you know, diarizing mood, um, as well as um, bringing in things like, you know, breathing exercises and meditation techniques, uh, yoga, etc., can be really powerful. I mean, it, you know, what works for one won't work for another, but um, personalizing that in a way that sort of applicable and you know, suits the individual is is really key and and can be a great complement to to therapy. The other the other thing is um, you know is this issue of circadian disruption, which is really just a fancy word for you know your sleep's a mess, and but it's a little bit more than that because circadian disruption is not just a sleep problem; it's also um, a lack of synchronicity between you know light and dark cycles. So you can have circadian disruption and be sleeping just fine. Um, what we're really talking about here is overexposure to light at night. And um, fundamentally what's happening here is normally our body follows the circadian rhythm on exposure to darkness. Our brain starts producing melatonin and so does our gut, in fact. And melatonin plays a really important role in regulating gut health, nerve function, reducing inflammation, uh, muscular contractions, all sorts of stuff and if you're not making that melatonin at night due to you know overexposure to electronic light is the main cause um you can really develop bad gastrointestinal symptoms in fact it's you know um the other thing is like sleep restriction you know so people who are shift workers just not sleeping well um will will develop you know a high incidence of these kinds of symptoms in fact sleep restriction studies have show if you just have one night of sleep restriction about, you know, in these studies, about 50% of people will have symptoms that look like IBS the next day, you know, so it's doesn't take much, you know, to flip the switch and, and start um, aggravating these, these kinds of symptoms. So that's a really big one that's often overlooked. And, you know, how do you deal with it? Well, it's lifestyle changes. So reducing light at night exposure and, um, you know, getting good sleep. Yeah, it's incredible how everything sort of ties in. You mentioned, you know, lack of, of sleep and all of a sudden the next morning, you know, cravings for more processed food, sugary foods. We have an exaggerated blood sugar response and all these things sort of tie in to create that perfect environment for some of the stuff to take root. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, you know, if we talk on the testing side of things, are there any conventional tests being used that are going to be helpful for helping to diagnose irritable bowel symptoms? Do we do we need to even diagnose it if we're really just talking about the symptoms and trying to dig deeper? And how about some of those functional tests, you know, like the CSA tests, food sensitivity tests, do they help to inform the practitioner? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a, a number of these are, are quite valid, um, particularly when you're looking, I mean, the key areas that are particularly useful is when you're looking for food sensitivity, so carbohydrate intolerance and um, immune-mediated food sensitivities, gluten sensitivity, um, you know, identifying vitamin D deficiency can, can be useful with blood or, or just, you know, I think it's pretty safe to assume that a lot of people are deficient as well, depending on their history and exposure. Um, and then a lot of these tests really come into play for these functional imbalances, you know, so it can be quite difficult otherwise to identify something like um, exocrine pancreatic enzyme insufficiency, like you'd just be guessing. So yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, so, so using um, some of the tests that identify, you know, things like fecal elastase one and, you know, low grade inflammation, you can pick up with fecal calprotectin, intestinal permeability. There's a few different biomarkers for that now. 
bile acid malabsorption. So there's quite a, a few things that can be quite useful for helping to at least rule out or even identify some of the underlying things that are going on for people. I think are quite valid, time-saving, and can really help personalize treatment. And of course, you know, from a client's perspective or even a practitioner, when they're, you know, when someone comes in and they're treating someone with irritable bowel-like uh, symptoms, you know, if we look at this from sort of 30,000 feet, I know it's always difficult to give exact um, uh, strategies here, but in terms of potential solutions or, or overarching principles, are there certain themes that you've seen over the years with working with clients? Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think the curious thing is, you know, I wrote a, a book on this topic and dove deep into, you know, some pretty, you know, the specific areas and a lot of detail. And the funny thing is, I think often it's the simplest things that bring about the best results. And, you know, I wish I had to put in the book a chapter on like chewing and, like, <laughs> and just like, you know, eating mindfully and, you know, cooking food at home <laughs> and stuff because these things are huge and uh, they're just completely overlooked and uh, and can have a massive impact. So I think, you know, uh, eating meals with other people, chewing food thoroughly before you swallow it, eating good quality home-cooked food, uh, processing food in a way that makes it more digestible, so cooking it, soaking it, you know, stewing it, you know, cooking uh, you know, in these um, traditional methods and ways, you know, all of these things will improve the digestibility of food. Um, it's, you know, it's immune tolerance and um, can often mitigate some of the symptoms before you get into the, you know, more detailed, personalized uh, underlying problems that could be going on. So I think, you know, I really think a take home for me over the years is just keep it simple. Very well said, and of course, definitely you know, mealtime, scrolling through Instagram or Twitter or Facebook is definitely something a lot of young athletes and young clients are doing. So, you know, as you right. mentioned, keep it keep it simple. Just put the phones down, turn the TV off, you know, enjoy your meal, talk to friends, colleagues, family, etc. Um, definitely, definitely a great place to start. And I think another one is clients often assume that raw food is always going to be easier to digest. Uh, and obviously, a lot of times can be can be the opposite. So great yeah. to point out that you know cooking foods and using some of these traditional methods is going to be helpful uh, for yeah. folks. Now, what about on the supplementation side of things? If we talk probiotics, are there certain um, you know strains or anything in particular that folks would look out for practitioners? Yeah, I mean that's a a big one I get asked about a lot is probiotics, and and really it's um, you know there's a lot of um, I mean, different messages, and most of it sort of comes from people selling the, the products. But the take-home for people is is you just identify a good product, and by that I mean you know, ideally one that's been shown to work for the problem you're using it for. So if you're using it for IBS, great if it's got a clinical study to show that it actually works for that condition on those strains. Um, so we differentiate probiotics based on strains and um, – the strains have, you know, very can have very different effects. So it's important to have a strain that's been shown to work for what you're using it for. Um, beyond that, the dose doesn't really matter. I know there's a huge sort of focus on more is better. But <laughs> for sure, get that hundred billion cap. Yeah, <laughs> but it doesn't matter. Um, really, the dose, the best guide for the dose is the dose that was used in the clinical study that you're looking at. But it's Difficult to navigate, unfortunately, unless you're familiar with the science. I think there's a reference in my book if you want to get into it. But it, the dose can 
be effective from millions to billions to trillions, you know, so the, you know, forget about doses, I think it, it doesn't really matter that much. And the other thing is, is if you're trialing a probiotic for IBS, what works for you is not going to work for another person, even if it's the best strain in the world, it's got a clinical study on it, and it's the right dose. So, you know, just be patient, you really want to try a product for at least four weeks. If it doesn't work, um, try a different one because you know, there's half a dozen or more now that have been well studied that, you know, are quite good for relieving these kinds of symptoms. So, you know, be patient, try it. What works for you is not going to work for someone else and and and, um, and do it that way. Um, but they can be extremely helpful, you know, and uh, for some people. Um, so definitely worthwhile trying. Terrific, Ben. Well, listen, Great insights here. Really appreciate you uh, taking the time here. So before we wrap up, one last question for you. Uh, where do you think the evolution of the research on irritable bowel-like symptoms is headed? You know, Where will we be in the next five or ten years? Yeah, I really, I really think it's all about personalization. I think what we're starting to see is a real movement away from, well, let's sort of blanket, you know, uh, these symptoms as a condition called IBS and and move towards, well, what's actually causing it? What's the underlying problem from person to person? And how do we develop methods of identifying what's going on for that person and, um, you know, appropriating individualized treatment? And certainly that seems to be where things are going. Fantastic, Ben. Well, listen, um, appreciate you coming on the show today. Where can people stay connected with you, um, pick up the book and, and keep up with your fantastic work? Yeah, so um, I've got a website that sort of plugs into the book, um, social media, uh, et cetera, and uh, the URL is scientificwellness.com. So if you if you jump on that, you'll you'll click through to um, my publications, events, um, and uh, and other media. Terrific. Well, I'll definitely include the link there and some of the papers we discussed here in the show in the notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Ben, thanks again for coming on the show and thanks again for everyone else tuning in. If you have any questions for Ben and want to leave a comment on today's episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at drbubs. If you enjoy the show, please take a minute, head over to iTunes or your favorite platform, subscribe and leave us a comment. It is definitely greatly appreciated. Thanks again, everyone, and see you guys all next week. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.